Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to Coronapod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me from California is Amy Maxman. Amy, how are you doing? I'm good. So last week we had a Coronapod special, which was a kind of a, a different take from what you might normally hear on the show. That was a documentary piece all about the reporting that you have done, Amy, in the San Joaquin Valley. I'd strongly recommend going and listening to that. It covers a lot of topics. It was a really fascinating piece for me to work on. And a lot of the background of that story was about the inequities that exist in American society, but across the world with regard to public health. And this week, we're back to a regular coronapod. And we're going to lead with a piece of news, which was really shocking and is linked in many ways to some of the many problems that were discussed in last week's coronapod. And that's the shocking announcement from the US that they will support a relaxation of intellectual property rights on vaccines. Amy, can you tell us a little bit about what's been going on in the last couple of days? So yesterday, the US Trade Representative announced something that I think shocked everyone, which is that the US supports a waiver on patents that are used to make COVID-19 vaccines. It's a temporary waiver, and this is just their support for it. But the reason why it was so shocking is because for as long as I've been alive, the US is like maybe the biggest, strongest supporter of IP. You know, I think people were saying these should be waived, but nobody really expected the US to put their weight behind that. But they did. And so for people that may not be up to date on this, can you tell us just briefly what we mean by intellectual property patents when it comes to things like vaccines and why the US has been such a staunch defender of it in the past? So the patents would cover all of the intellectual property that has anything to do with any of the COVID-19 vaccines. And the reason why the U.S. has been a really strong defender of such patents is because we have a strong pharmaceutical sector and the way that they sort of recoup all of these massive investments they put into research and development is to be able to hold a patent for some period of time. It's 20 years from the point of filing, and then they get exclusivity on the market. So that's sort of their reward for having done all the upfront investment. 
And so those laws exist to protect the pharmaceutical industry's ability to make profits and recoup those investments. And yet there have been countries that have been calling for a relaxation of those laws around COVID treatments and COVID vaccines. So South Africa have made that call. India have made that call. And now the US has said that they would support that as well. What's the reaction likely to be to that political statement? So right now we're at a particular point in time. So that was the first day of a general council meeting at the WTO, World Trade Organization, that happened yesterday when the U.S. announced this. Today's the second day of the meeting. So things might be drastically different by the end of today, and it's Thursday today. The podcast comes out Friday. So keep in mind, this might change somewhat. So what could happen today is I've heard uh, analysts say that they expect several countries, you know, such as, for example, Brazil or Japan that haven't supported waivers to maybe come over to the U.S. side now that the U.S. has kind of thrown their weight behind this. Some analysts speculate that maybe the European Union might be the holdout. The reason why that matters is because the WTO won't go on to actually get into the details of which patents to waive until every country agrees that there should be some sort of waivers. Now, South Africa and India have pushed for waivers, not just over the patents on vaccines, but also on PPE and therapeutics and diagnostic tests, other uh, technologies that have to do with COVID-19. And the U.S. in the statement was really specifically about vaccines. And we should explain here that the reason that you might want to waive the patents on these vaccines is because it would allow generic manufacturers to produce them at a lower cost for countries that so far have not been able to vaccinate as many of their population as they would like, which is a lot of low and middle income countries around the world. Yeah, it's drastic. You know, less than 1% of the population in low income countries has been vaccinated. The U.S. has more than enough vaccines to vaccinate everybody in its population. We've now made it so anybody over age 12 can be vaccinated. You know, and meanwhile, you have people over age 70 and health workers and people at high risk in so many countries that have zero access to vaccine. And to give you any sense of how the world works, if there isn't measures that push this, at the moment, the world needs about 11 billion doses of corona vaccines just to immunize 70 percent of the world's population. So far, even though the companies that exist have confirmed orders for 8.6 billion vaccines, 6 billion of those are going to high-income countries. Okay, so to do some pack of the envelope with that, that basically means that 70% of the world's vaccines are going to 30% of the world because 70% of the world lives in middle and low-income countries. Which simply can't afford vaccines in the numbers that they need to vaccinate their populations while these patterns are in place? It's a complicated question. So it's a little bit to do with that. I guess the point is just simply letting the market do what it wants isn't going to solve this problem. I think we should also say here that this sounds in many ways like an altruistic act on the part of the US to try to waive some of the companies in the US's possible profit margin or to support a waiver of that. But it is also something that we should state that we are not free from COVID until the world is free from COVID. If we want to open up borders again properly, if we want to allow travel again, then there's lots of places that need to get vaccines to them. So there is a kind of a reason for high-income countries to try to facilitate vaccinating people outside of their country as well. Oh, for sure. And think about how much of, you know, manufacturing might happen in India and other countries like that. We're a global world. And so in many ways, I hear this and I'm like, okay, the US has thrown its weight behind trying to find ways to make vaccines more accessible for low and middle income countries. The pharmaceutical companies might lose out from this. What would be the arguments 
against doing this? So I think the pharmaceutical industry is largely against the measure. The industry group, Pharmaceutical Research Manufacturers of America, their acronym is PHARMA, right after the announcement, they put out a really scathing statement that talked about all of the reasons why this was a terrible move. Some others, some some researchers, you know, notably Bill Gates has said he's against it. And there's a few reasons they put forward for it. One is the major overruling idea is that the way that you encourage the pharmaceutical industry is to be able to allow them to make profits when they make huge investments up front that can take many years. So they're saying this sets a dangerous precedence and then it's not fair. What proponents of waivers are saying are a few things. Number one, this is a temporary waiver we're talking about. Number two, it's specifically about COVID. And then also they note that there was public funding that went into all of the vaccines, some more than others. So that's taxpayer money. And so it's not like the companies put up all of the investment for R&D up front. And then also just to note, you know, companies are profiting from these vaccines. So there was an article in the New York Times that said in the first three months of 2021 this year, the Pfizer vaccine generated $3.5 billion in revenue. And let's just note that Pfizer had promised to contribute 2% of the doses that it made to COVAX, which is the WHO's mechanism to supply low-income countries with vaccines. But Pfizer's not even come close to fulfilling the goal of 2%. And there are also arguments that pharmaceutical companies might make, and that indeed Bill Gates made, around safety of the vaccines. Can you explain what that argument is? So what Bill Gates said was, you know, if you get generic manufacturers jumping in and producing these vaccines, it could give them a really bad name if a company had bad manufacturing practices, and then that's really dangerous and they have a dangerous product. Again, what people will say back to that is that most of the drugs and the vaccines in the world at this point are generic, and there are standards for manufacturing which mean that we still can trust generic drugs and generic vaccines. I think we should also say here that it's not just a case of make it legal for someone else to produce it. It's also like you need to tell them how to make it as well. Otherwise, it's still not going to actually solve the problem we're trying to solve here, which is vaccinating the world. What everyone who's been in support of these waivers who I've talked to says is that if a waiver goes through, the second thing that has to happen is a transfer of knowledge, a technology transfer agreement, sort of you need to have the companies or whoever knows how to make the vaccines teach other companies how to do it, what they need, what the reagents are, even maybe help them get those reagents. So that's kind of the second thing that needs to happen. Now, generic companies will often figure out how to reverse engineer a drug or vaccine once it goes off patent, but that can take years and we don't really have years. So they're saying, no, don't make them just reverse engineer this and try all the clinical trials again, but actually teach them how to do it. And it feels like that's a difficult step if already pharmaceutical companies are, you know, not approving of this first step because you surely need them on board to make the second step happen. Yeah, I hear there are incentives, but I was writing a breaking story yesterday, so I didn't get into what those are. But maybe that's a story in the future. (laughs) So we don't know what's going to happen with this shock move from the US. We don't know whether or not patents will be waived for a temporary period with vaccines. And it's something that we're going to have to watch But while we're on this topic, if we think about equity, if we think about trying to provide access to something like vaccines all over the world, there are various other ways in which, in the sort of sphere of science and research, that equity is thought about. And one of those is data equity. So that's trying to make 
data freely accessible across the world so everyone can access that. And just like with the vaccine patents, where there's lots of sides to that discussion, lots of arguments, there's a lot of nuance around open data as well. And that's what you've been looking into this week. Yeah. So maybe it helps if I give the origin of this story. So last month, there were sort of back-to-back pieces, one in science, one in nature, that talked about this data platform called GISAID, the GISAID initiative. That's the most popular place where scientists will upload their SARS-CoV-2 genome data. Right now, it's got about 1.4 million sequences, and that is unprecedented in the sense that the data is coming from around the world, and it's prior to publication quite often. When I'm talking about GISAID, I'm talking about a site that I have access to, so I can see all of that genomic data, only I have to sign in, I have to log in, and when I log in with my email and a password, I have to agree to terms and conditions. So the articles that came out in Science and Nature were from researchers who were just saying, no, there shouldn't be any sort of sign-in and terms and conditions. So what are the kind of terms and conditions that were being objected to at that point in time? What the objections were was that there is a gatekeeper. And if you want to do the kind of huge analyses that, you know, in the U.S. and in Western Europe, there's lots of bioinformatics labs. They call them dry labs. Basically, researchers sit in rooms with computers and, you know, often they have whole clusters of computers that they're working with. And they can do these massive genomic analyses where they crunch hundreds of thousands of genomes from different databases, and they come out with phylogenetic trees that tell you how the virus is evolving. These are huge studies. GISAID sort of slows that process down, because if you're going to publish a paper with these big analyses, you have to give credit to all of the people who uploaded those sequences. And GISAID also suggests make your best effort to reach out to them for collaboration. It sounds great, but also, you know, researchers have said this sort of slows them down. And therein lies the terms and conditions that lead to the kind of twist in this story. So the kind of suggestion by GISAID that you collaborate with people that uploaded these sequences and the requirement to acknowledge those labs, those people around the world, slows up these big bioinformatics studies, which are really useful and really helpful, but potentially disadvantages people that are uploading those data. Can you tell us more about why people might not want to remove these terms and conditions? Yeah, so these articles came out in Science and Nature, and I started hearing about how people were really upset about them. I can tell you this is one of those stories that's like bizarrely contentious. At first, I was like, "Eh, I'm going to write about some databases, but it ended up being people on both sides being really passionate about this issue. What I did is I decided, okay, I want to talk to more people who we hadn't heard from, like researchers working in Africa or South America. So I reached out to a lot of them. You know, you can see their names on sequences in GISAID. So I emailed them and I talked to a number of researchers in both of those continents. And I would say across the board, the reason they were sharing their data is because of the terms and conditions on GISAID. And there's a number of reasons for why. Now, one, you know, I think because I've been to several of these countries, I can tell you um, it's sort of unbelievably difficult to just to do work that we find here might be simple. So if the first person I spoke with was somebody named Emeka Ndodo, who I met in Nigeria a couple of years ago. He's working at the Nigeria Center for Disease Control. So they're doing the outbreak response. You know, they're trying to set up ways that different states in the country are responding to coronavirus. In addition, he's doing all of the extraction of the RNA himself. He's doing 
the sequencing of it and he's doing the uploading of it. And of course, you know, the internet there might not run fast enough in the day. So you've got to do your analysis and your uploading at night. Everything is just sort of a degree harder because of a lack of human resources, people that are being paid enough to do these jobs because of a lack of reagents, a lack of infrastructure in the country. So suffice to say, they're working really hard to do all of this. And they also want to do the analyses themselves. They're not quite happy to just do all of the work and ship it off so that, you know, scientists in the West can then analyze it and get the really exciting papers out of it. Right. So that's the kind of crux of it here, right? The value of the data on these big repositories, a big part of the value of that is that there is data from all over the world. So if you're doing something like trying to track variants, you want to be able to get the biggest net you can. So you want scientists to be able to contribute data from all over the world. And yet researchers in a lot of countries in the global south, they don't want to be disadvantaged by not being able to be credited for all of that work. Exactly. They, they need to be incentivized. And it's not just about their careers, because if you do the big, exciting papers, you get big publications that can lead to grants, that can lead to patents. So all of that would really help these labs that are really under-resourced to begin with. So no, they don't want to just hand over the data. To give you, you know, another story... When I was in Democratic Republic of Congo, I had met some researchers at their National Institute there, INRB, and one of them had worked in Guinea during the world's largest Ebola outbreak in West Africa, 2014 to 2016. When he was working in Guinea, all of the samples that you know primarily African doctors and researchers were collecting were all being shipped out of the country. So every single blood sample from anyone was shipped out for analysis in Europe or in the U.S. And those turned around publications and patents and pretty much all of the authors on the patents and most of the publications were all in the West. None of that work benefited the labs in Guinea. And at this point in time, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, they can't do genomic sequencing. So those labs were never built up. And I think it's important as well to add in the context that the reason scientists are doing this work is so that they can update vaccines, it's so they can develop treatments, it's so that they can find ways to help fight the pandemic. And those vaccines, those treatments are also not getting to these countries that are going hell for leather and perhaps not even getting the credit for it. Yes. So... That was something that a few researchers brought up to me, too. I think the vaccine inequity right now puts a really sharp point on these fears. The idea, kind of the audacity, that the rich world would want to have all of these sequences so that we know if we're going to need a booster to protect against a variant that arises in, say, South America or Africa or India, and yet we know that vaccines are not getting to these places. That was really hurtful to them. You know, one researcher just told me it's incredibly demoralizing. And yet you said this is very controversial. People have very strong opinions in the Global South that you've spoken to about the idea of not getting credit for the work that they're doing. People are on the other side arguing vehemently in the other direction as well. Like what's the, is the other side to this argument just we can't analyse data as quickly if we have to take the time to credit everyone and reach out to them for collaborations? Pretty much. Computer bioengineers, computer scientists, they feel like they're going to be able to do better, faster analyses if there is no gatekeeping in place. And what they'll tell me is that our analyses are saving lives. It's a crisis. This must happen now. I think it's one of those stories that just gets more and more nuanced and complicated the more you think about it, because you can understand on the surface of it, you know, you might have the attitude of, 
you know, you send in your star quarterback at the time of crisis, because that's when we need to win this point. And so you want to put all of your money where you've got the resources. But then this is a long game. And there are lots of other nuanced reasons that maybe if you just do that, and then you neglect all of your subs, then at some point when your quarterback's tired, then what happens next? You, You haven't built anything up or what happens with... I mean, I'm really stretching my analogy here into a, into a point that it doesn't work. <laughs> but 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 yeah, I think it's important to think about these nuances. And these are the kinds of things that, that I think often get overlooked when people are making these big decisions. Exactly. That's something I found myself thinking about. You know, a researcher told me, this is crucial. This is a crisis. This isn't time to just enrich your career. And so I put that to one scientist I spoke with in South Africa, like, you know, hey, it's a crisis. Why are you trying to enrich your career? And he said he absolutely agrees. It's more important to help humanity than enrich his career. But he he told me something sort of interesting. Basically, governments listen to their own scientists most of all. He was in South Africa. So when he saw the variant first discovered in South Africa pop up, he could communicate that to his government and his government listens to him most of all. So by being able to make sure that they can do their own analyses He's effectively able to communicate that to his government so that his government can take direct action in controlling the spread of that variant. So he kind of put it to me like, how do you think it would work if Boris Johnson learned about the B117 variant? That's the one that popped up in UK that's more transmissible. How would Boris Johnson feel if he heard about that because the New York Times reported on a study that was done in New York? he might not have reacted the same. So his point is letting these studies be done in country actually does help save the pandemic. Okay, well, two big stories that I think are going to be playing out over the next months and years to keep watching. But for now, let's leave it there. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. And I'll speak to you, I'm sure, about this again soon. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.